sometimes two names for the same thing. It is the heritage of the thousands of years gone by, during which everything has been thought and rethought. Odysseus is considered a Bronze Age figure. That term defines a time when tools and other metal objects were still made of bronze, followed, obviously enough, by the so-called Iron Age, when that stronger and more durable metal had supplanted bronze in the fabrication of most utensils. One can also say that Odysseus grew up at the close of the second millennium B.C., or as it is more neutrally rendered nowadays, second millennium B.C.E., that is to say, before the Common Era. Others call Odysseus a product of the Heroic Age, a term that originally comes from the fact that in the earliest accounts written in the Greek language, men of the aristocratic warrior class are sometimes designated by the Greek word heros. The English word hero, which derives from heros, has a lot of romantic nonsense invested into it, coming by way of the European Middle Ages and chivalric codes when men kept themselves in a state of spiritual readiness and fought battles that were called crusades, despite their economic and political undertones. All this was inherited by 19th century romanticism, which willy-nilly rubs off on contemporary conceptions of these ancient Greek figures. In using one of these three terms, Bronze Age, Heroic Age, or Second Millennium, the choice probably says a lot about the person making it. The area in which Odysseus grew to adulthood is known today as Greece. The people among whom Odysseus lived are commonly called Greeks, and their language is also known to linguists as Greek. The words Greek and Greece were invented by the Romans, along with so much else bequeathed to the Western world, but not much liked by the people so named. They prefer Hellenes and Hellenic for the language, but neither was in use in Odysseus' time. Rather, his people were called Achaeans, the land Achaea. Sometimes, however, the language is called Mycenaean, and the people Mycenaeans, because the center of power in the second millennium seems to have been located at Mycenae, a rocky citadel south of present-day Corinth and slightly northwest of modern Nopleon. Mycenae's legendary ruler, Agamemnon, exercised some kind of nominal control over all the other local aristocrats, lords, and chiefs scattered in small settlements throughout the mainland and the islands of the Aegean and Ionian seas. The Greek language is one of what is called the Indo-European family of languages. At the end of the third millennium BCE, mass movements of people speaking some kind of Indo-European precursor of Greek came down through the present-day Balkans and spread out over the mainland to the south and the islands to the east and west. Their dialect of Indo-European evolved into a separate language which linguists call Greek. They established an empire and engaged in trade with their neighbors throughout the Mediterranean. As trade tends to go hand-in-hand hand with warfare, we read a lot about plunder, and there are accounts of these people as hostile forces in several areas. Around the end of the second millennium BCE, the Mycenaeans clashed with a large and powerful culture whose center, the ancient citadel called Troy, was located at the entrance to the Dardanelles. It is near the modern Turkish city of Hisarlik. It so happens that the makers of the oral poetic tradition in the early period of Greek culture settled on that venue for the narrative of one of the great battle stories of all time. The truth or falsehood of the account is not verifiable and doesn't really matter. There are some things that are true in another way, and the Trojan War is one of them. The story of the Trojan War was treated as history by the ancients, and because it has been around for so long, and told in so many different ways to so many different audiences, it has become an honorary fact, so to speak, for the whole of the Western world. There are, in fact, many persons in the last two centuries who considered it a truth, 
one of them the wealthy 19th century businessman Heinrich Schliemann, who spent a fortune on archaeological digs and found abundant evidence of civilization, both at Hisarlik and Mycenae, which he promptly declared were the sites described in the poems The Iliad and The Odyssey. Odysseus' life is partly defined by his role in the Trojan War. Not only does this legitimate a kind of historical existence for him, but that association has also given a kind of veracity to his subsequent ordeal of return to his native land, a series of adventures that frequently border on the miraculous. Odysseus has the kind of character of which much could be posited, and the ancients took his initial story and embroidered upon it, so that the Odysseus figure became far more complicated and three-dimensional than the usual literary construct that exists solely in one text. The explosion of information in the 20th century, together with the privileging of the scientific method, has tended to overshadow and sometimes extinguish legend masquerading as history. This is a pity. As Aristotle once observed, legend is truer than history, since it presents what human psychology needs to know is true, whereas history is only a succession of events that have happened. The struggle of Odysseus to get home and once there to destroy the men who were besieging his wife can be read in infinitely different ways. Historical fact does not usually have that depth. Here are the basics. Odysseus was the son of King Laertes and Queen Anticleia. He grew up with his sister Ketimene in the palace. Among their many attendants were the nanny Eurycleia and the swineherd Eumaeus, who stand out for their loyalty and the goatherd, Melanthius, and the table waitress and kitchen helper, Melantho, both of whom seemed to be rotten apples. King Laertes ruled the island of Ithaca and adjacent lands, all part of the nominal domain of the king of Mycenae, Agamemnon. Agamemnon was married to Clytemnestra. His brother Menelaus, king of Sparta, was married to her sister, the fabulous Helen, who ran off with a prince from Troy named Paris a provocation that caused Agamemnon to declare war on Troy and demand fleets and troops from his subjects. Odysseus was married to the cousin of these two sisters, Penelope, by whom he had one son, Telemachus. Shortly thereafter he went off to fight at Troy with a contingent of local men. The war was a bitter, seemingly endless affair of ten long years in which Odysseus probably got to know better than he wanted to the arrogant Agamemnon, the wimpy Menelaus, the tiresome old Nestor, the self-obsessed Achilles, his son Neoptolemus, the two prima donnas, Ajax and Philoctetes, as well as a lot of great guys whom anyone would hope to find fighting next to him in a risky situation, like his favorite battle companion Diomedes. Helen languished the war away inside the walls of Troy with, among others, her always beautiful, sexy consort, Paris, his serious, dutiful brother, Hector, and the old king, Priam, and his queen, Hecuba. After the war ended with the destruction of Troy, Odysseus sailed for home, but rounding Cape Malaya was blown off his course for ten more years. His second-in-command was his sister's brother-in-law, Eurylochus, who brought him nothing but grief. During this time Odysseus was hounded by the god of the sea, Poseidon, who wanted to avenge Odysseus' cruel treatment of his son. But he was also helped by the goddess Athena, who, for reasons of her own, had an enduring affection for him. On his gale-blown wanderings he encountered a wide variety of people from what seems the land of fairy tale. The friendly lotus-eaters, Poseidon's son, the giant Cyclops, who ate some of the crew for dinner, 
King Aeolus, who gave him favoring winds, the giant, hostile Lastragonians, the witch Circe on the island of Aea, who turned men into swine, but kept Odysseus for herself in bed, the seer Tiresias, whom Odysseus went to meet in the underworld, the sirens whose sweet singing drove men mad, the giant water monsters Scylla and Charybdis, who nearly drowned him, the sea nymph Calypso, on whose island Ogygia Odysseus was washed up when Zeus had destroyed his entire fleet and crew with a thunderbolt for having eaten the cattle of Helios, as the sun god was known in Greece, and the Phaeacians on the island of Scyria, whose king Alcinous and queen Arete at last provided a ship to send the weary fellow home, despite the obvious desire of their beautiful sixteen-year-old daughter, Nausicaa, that he stay and become her husband. Back to Ithaca he went. At home his wife, Penelope, was surrounded by all the younger men of the territory, who wanted her to declare Odysseus dead, herself a widow, and nominate one of them to succeed to the throne. The three leaders were Eurymachus, Antinous, and Amphinomus. With the active help of Athena, who more or less plays fairy godmother to his Cinderella, Odysseus insinuates himself among the suitors at the palace in the disguise of a beggar. There ensues a tension-filled series of moves until, with a lot of help from Athena and vital assistance from his son Telemachus, the swineherd Eumaeus, and the oxherd Philetius, the suitors are killed and Odysseus is reunited.